This message comes from NPR sponsor, Acorn TV. Acorn TV is brilliant television told brilliantly. From charmingly cozy mysteries to daringly dark dramas. Visit acorn.tv for a 30-day free trial with promo code NPR. Acorn TV. Brilliant. A warning. This episode includes discussion of sex acts. Saltburn is a provocative and fun thriller. Barry Keoghan plays an outcast at Oxford University who befriends one of his popular and posh classmates. He's played by Jacob Elordi. A twisty game of obsession and manipulation ensues. The movie comes from Emerald Fennell, whose previous film Promising Young Woman was acclaimed but polarizing. It seems safe to say that this movie will have audiences in heated debates yet again. I'm Stephen Thompson. And I'm Aisha Harris. And today we're talking about Saltburn on Pop Culture Happy Hour from NPR. Here with me and Stephen today are our fellow co-hosts, Linda Holmes. Hey, Linda. Hi, Aisha. And Glenn Weldon. Hey, Glenn. Hey, Aisha. So Saltburn. Saltburn, Saltburn, Saltburn. (laughs) (laughs) This movie stars Barry Keoghan as Oliver, a student at Oxford University. Oliver comes from a broken home and is on scholarship, which makes him a lonely outsider among his wealthier peers. Now, one day he has a chance interaction with Felix, played by Jacob Elordi. Felix is a popular guy on campus, and the two become friends, which brings Oliver into the in-crowd. Felix invites him to spend the summer at Saltburn, his family's huge estate. Felix's eccentric family includes his parents, they're played by Rosamund Pike and Richard E. Grant. Also hanging around Saltburn is a family friend played by Carrie Mulligan. Saltburn was written and directed by Emerald Fennell. It's being released by Amazon Studios, and we should note that Amazon supports NPR and pays to distribute some of our content. Now, this is the kind of movie that's kind of difficult to talk about too much without getting into some major spoilers. Oliver's visit to Saltburn has life-changing ramifications for everyone involved, as we will see. So for this episode, we're going to give our overall reactions, take a quick break, and then come back to discuss it in more detail, spoilers and all. (laughs) So Glenn, I'm going to start with you, and I'm going to pose this question, because Fennell's artistic statement about the film says, in part, that she was interested in exploring that tension between disgust and desired. Mm -hmm. So do you fall more in line with disgust or (laughs) desire when it comes to this movie? I mean, in terms of how I feel about this film, I love it. How much do I love it? Oh, just ever so is how much I love it. But this film exists in that intersection between desire and disgust. And uh, it is just so smart and so hilariously bleak. And this is about the intersection of desire and disgust. This has a lot of Brideshead Revisited and Talented Mr. Ripley, as many have said, but it also has a lot of the ruling class and with <laughs> Nail and I. There is a real longing for this kind of idle rich lifestyle and a real contempt for the idle rich themselves. And the film, we'll talk more about this once after the spoilers, yeah. but this film really becomes about what happens when longing gets infected by, corrupted by, like, self-loathing. Barry Keoghan is the perfect guy to exemplify that because this guy (laughs) is bringing character actor vibes to this leading role as only he can. And Jacob Elordi, man, like, (laughs) even when he's trying to be nice, he's still repellent. There is this very real need in him to uh, come off as a guy who is not like these other rich jerks. But (laughs) even as he's saying that, the privilege is kind of steaming off of his body (laughs) 
<laughs> just stepped out of a sauna in wintertime. Um, do I want the character played by Carrie Mulligan and the characters played by Rosamund Pike to get a reality show where they just travel across the English countryside in a car and <laughs> like they're Gail and Oprah and have adventures where they try to pump petrol? Yeah, I do. I do want that. But man, I loved everything about this movie. I can't wait to talk about it uh, in greater detail. Yeah, the Carrie Mulligan character, Pamela, who is billed in the credits as Poor dear Pamela. Poor dear. Yes. <laughs> Such a beautiful touch. So, Linda, where do you fall? Disgust, desire? I really liked this. I thought it was really good. I think all the performances are terrific. I think Emerald Finale. It's much easier to understand her work when you understand that she's a maximalist, right? Mm -hmm. She's mm -hmm. like stylistically... She would never do half a thing when she can do the entire thing, and she would never do the entire thing when she could do the entire thing extra. So yeah. I think that as you watch this movie, there are a bunch of times when you sort of think to yourself, like, are they really going to do that? And then I promise you, in every case, the answer is, <laughs> yes, they really are going to do that. And mm -hmm. as this whole thing ramps up, I think... You know, I'm so fascinated by the way that she handles the tone because really when the guys are at school, it's sort of this soft, thrillery feeling, but also kind of social commentary feeling thing. And when they get to Saltburn, it becomes more explicitly comedic. And it is when you start to meet that Carrie Mulligan character. It is when you start to meet, especially the Rosamund Pike character. Yeah, Because those two performances are both explicitly comedic in a way that the movie really isn't until you get to that point. So she's handling the tone in such an interesting way in that the arrival at Saltburn really makes the movie in some ways into this bleak, 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 bleak <laughs> comedy. And I, I just I was so entertained. <laughs> yeah, it, I was definitely getting some Oscar Wilde vibes here mm -hmm, um, yeah. as well. And even something like Cruel Intentions. Mm -hmm. um, I also think that Fennell really makes this her own in, in a really interesting way. Um, Stephen, how about you? I mean, obviously, we love poor dear Pamela. but <laughs> I was completely delighted by this movie. This movie is a collision of so many things I like. It is directed with such verve and such audacity and such life. There are so many individual shots in this movie where you just want to freeze frame the screen and soak them in. She's so good at just like making sure she's getting a shot that will stick with you. There is a scene in which a character has these sort of wings and is being followed around by a character who is wearing horns. And, mm -hmm. and it is as unsubtle as you think from that description, but also just so vivid and smart and beautiful. I love the way this movie is kind of shifting tonally. Mm -hmm. like sometimes yeah. you watch a film that is tonally all over the place and you're like, they don't know what kind of movie they want to be. <laughs> this movie knows what kind of movie it wants to be. And yeah. I have to give such an extra shout out to the casting. From oh, top yes. to bottom, the casting is exquisite. It is so useful to watch this Barry Keoghan performance on the heels of the Banshees of Inisherin. Yes. First of all, he's yeah. fantastic. He was Oscar nominated for a reason. The way this performance is in conversation with that previous performance, it makes it that much richer. I just saw Jacob Elordi in Priscilla, where he's playing Elvis, and I've seen a lot of Euphoria, where he plays a big, bad scary villain and this 
performance is in conversation with those performances a little bit. And he's yeah. able to play with kind of some of the sense of a looming quality he has and a menacing quality he has while bringing in this ethereal beauty at the same time. I just stayed fascinated with every character as their motivations shift. I was transfixed by this film. I loved this film. I want everybody to see this film, and I want to make sure that everybody sees the film before they listen to our spoiler section, where <laughs> yes, we can yes. really go deep mm-hmm. on yeah. where this movie goes. Yeah. I I also love this. So this is going to be a love fest about yeah. this movie, I guess. Um, honestly, my favorite character and my favorite character dynamic is actually not the one that is between Oliver and Felix, but the one that's between Oliver and Farley. Mm -hmm. Farley is such an interesting character. I think that Archie Madeque is doing such interesting work because he is... He's not a part of the immediate family. He's the cousin. Um, it seems like his uh, Sir James is actually like has been giving money to his mom. She's had some financial ha- hardships. And then on top of that, he's biracial. Mm-hmm. And so to see him feel suddenly completely threatened by this new person. And the interlopers are sure they're going to spot each other in a way. Mm-hmm. Yes. There's a great karaoke scene uh, <laughs> that, that comes up where the song Rent by the Pet Shop Boys is employed. Oh, it's such a good use of that song. Very perfectly. Um, so yeah, I, I just, I thought that that dynamic was just, to me, the even more interesting part of this. And I, I think that it just adds an extra layer of tension. And like, even though Farley is biracial, that's like the one thing that she doesn't really play up. Like, yes, Fennell is yeah. very maximalist, but she doesn't hound on that. It's just like it's very subtle because these characters would never actually really talk about race mm-hmm. in that way. Mm-hmm. Like, it's just, you know. Mm-hmm. So I, I thought that was very, <laughs> very perfect. Glenn, did you get the feeling watching this film? Were you reminded of the works of Yorgos Lanthimos? Oh, sure. Absolutely. I, yeah. I thought that too. The favorite. Yeah. 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 The favorite. Absolutely. And notes of poor things, which uh, we're going to be talking about soon. But yeah, there is, I mean, for one thing, there will be a graduate thesis or 10 written about the use and abuse of bodily fluids in this movie. Um, <laughs> so many and, bodily fluids. Man, I think this is so of the body and... Uh, carnal, carnal desires, carnal disgust, carnal all of that. Carnal in every sense of the word. <laughs> um, so yeah, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we'll go into even more detail about the movie. Spoilers are ahead. This message comes from NPR sponsor BritBox, helping people discover a world of British TV, including new original drama Time, starring Jodie Whittaker, Tamara Lawrence, and Bella Ramsey. Streaming at BritBox.com NPR. I'm Jesse Thorne. Why did Cola Scola write a bonkers, extremely fictionalized play about Mary Todd Lincoln? Well, you know, it was 2020 and we were all so isolated. I, I just started doing research. On, but the truth is, I, no, I just thought of it. We'll talk about that and more on Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. Drake and Kendrick Lamar have been lobbing some serious accusations at each other. You've probably heard the diss tracks and wondered, what's just a low blow and what's actually criminal? I'm Brittany Luce, host of It's Been a Minute from NPR. And I'm getting into what's art and what's worthy of criminal investigation and who those accusations hurt the most. On It's Been a Minute from NPR. Do you wish stories could unfold over three hours rather than three minutes? You tired of doom scrolling? Trying to find humanity? Or maybe a deeper understanding of why the world is the way it is? Listen to Embedded, NPR's original documentary series. Find us wherever you get your podcasts. 
Hey, this is Stephen Thompson. Before we get back to the show, a quick word. We know it's important to you to have us here every week, helping you figure out what to watch, read, or listen to. Your financial support makes us happy every week. It's what makes it possible for NPR to cover news and pop culture and give you shows like this one. Even though what you listen to from NPR is free, it's not free to produce, which is why we want to say a big thank you to our Pop Culture Happy Hour Plus supporters and anyone listening who currently donates to public media. If that's not you, Giving Tuesday is almost here, and an international day of giving is the perfect reason to sign up for Pop Culture Happy Hour Plus. You'll be supporting the show, and you'll hear each episode without messages from sponsors. Or you can make a tax-deductible donation to your local NPR station. You have choices. What really matters is that you are a part of the community of listeners who keep NPR going. We cannot do it without you. You can give today at donate.np.com npr.org slash happy or explore npr plus at plus.npr.org thank you and we're back let's get into the salt burn spoilers all right so we eventually find out that oliver played by barry keoghan has been lying to felix who's played by jacob alordi as well as his family in truth oliver actually comes from a well-to-do and seemingly loving family felix discovers a lie and feels betrayed He doesn't tell anyone else in his family about Oliver's deception, but Felix does end their friendship and insists Oliver leave Saltburn following the big birthday bash at the estate that's being held that evening. Now, at the party, Oliver tries to reconcile with Felix, but a drunken Felix rebuffs him. The next morning, Felix is found dead in the middle of the property's hedge maze. Yes, they also have a hedge mage, which is how rich they are. Of course they do. (laughs) So Farley is kicked out of Saltburn for using drugs, but Rosamund Pike's distraught Elspeth insists Oliver continue living with the family. We haven't even gotten to Felix's sister, Venetia. She's played by Allison Oliver. Venetia is eventually found dead in the bathtub. Richard E. Grant's Sir James offers Oliver a hefty sum of money to finally leave him and his wife alone. Sometime later and after James has passed on, Elspeth and Oliver reconnect and she invites him to come back. And finally, in a Kaiser Soze style reveal at the end, <laughs> we also find out that Oliver was pulling the strings the entire time. Everything from how he first met Felix at Oxford up to Venetia's death has been strategically choreographed by Oliver. He ultimately kills the unsuspecting Elspeth too, but not before he's gotten her to leave everything to him in her will. <laughs> So what do we make of this Kaiser Soze style moment? Does it work? Linda, I'll start with you. It worked brilliantly on me. The fascinating thing about this film to me is that to a degree, you do know where it's going, right? Because when you meet Felix, rarely has a character been so obviously doomed since Goose (laughs) in Top Gun. Like, he is this beautiful young man. He is going to die, right? I did not see coming that... Oliver was going to eventually manage to bring about the deaths of the entire family, either directly or sort of indirectly, and claim Saltburn for himself. Um, That (laughs) I did not think about. I did not see it coming. And, you know, I do like the number of things that she leaves ambiguous even after these reveals it's not completely clear like initially when he set up the friendship with felix he i don't think he intended to kill them all and take the house at that point right (laughs) yeah that's the question but at some point this morphed and i think you know what i love about finale talking about this connection between desire and disgust is that is this a, a thing where oliver's kind of attraction to to felix started that way and then kind of 
transformed into this vicious desire to sort of consume and possess Felix and Felix's life? Or is he really driven by the desire to consume and become Felix? And it is played out at some points through an erotic lens, right? And I'm not trying to write the homoeroticism out of the movie by any means, but it's interesting to me to think about how those things fit together. Right, because it's the movie starts with him saying, I loved him, but was I in love with him? And then, like, there's that question throughout the film that's really percolating under all of Oliver's intentions, cruel or no. That's a thing he denies several times that he's in in love with him, which, again, that's what we call a tell. Yes. (laughs) Um, I think this question of whether or not there was sincere queer desire there or he's just a sociopath who is gifted at – becoming what the person who's right in front of him needs. I think that's a question that Fennell wants us to have. Mm-hmm. I also think it's a really interesting thing to unpack because it is a Kaiser Soze reveal of some of the details of how things happen. But what we see him doing over the course of the film is manipulating people. You could be reading this film up to the moment of these last minute reveals of, oh, good for him. He's learning to play the game. Here's this sad little guy And you think it's going to become a very boring morality play where, oh, no, he's a nice guy who, uh, because he desires these things, he is selling his soul to become that. Mm -hmm. No, (laughs) that's not what's going on. There's evidence of it. Like, he flirts with the mother character and he... He flirts with everyone. (laughs) He does flirt with everyone. (laughs) Except for Sir James. (laughs) Exactly. He is a cold, calculating sociopath from the jump who is just more honest (laughs) (laughs) about what he wants and how to get it than they are. And that's why they kind of fall by the wayside because he is much more clear and driven. And whether or not there is sincere queer desire in this film, I think is answered by the final needle drop, which is, of course, murder on the dance floor as he's dancing naked through the house. I think I got my answer, at least to satisfy me. It is remarkable how many movies we watch where the final third becomes just this dismal playing out of inevitable battles and Mm -hmm. conflicts Mm -hmm. and resolution Mm -hmm. versus the way this thing keeps spinning faster and faster, keeps spinning faster and faster. You know, first of all, I hope this film is very much in the Oscars conversation, but I think about old iterations of the Oscars where like the host has to like play out different scenes from the famous films of of the year. And I just imagine that host, which do you pick? Do you pick dancing around the house naked? Do you picture humping a grave is what you're looking for. Humping a grave? Humping a grave? Yes. While sobbing in the rain. Licking a drain? (laughs) Drinking the bath water as it drains from the tub. There are so many just very vivid overwhelmingly well-crafted and unforgettable (laughs) scenes to choose from. Yeah, I definitely was watching it thinking, oh, geez, well, I guess this is going to be the Guy Humps a Grave movie. And then (laughs) you get to the very end, and I was like, wait, maybe it's going to be the Barry Keoghan Dances Around the House fully naked movie. But even before that, there's the, you know, Period blood, fingers, sure. Uh, sure. you know, movie, which, like, again, this year, I guess, has been a year of body fluids because I think about also Fair Play, the, the drama mm-hmm. that you and I talked about on a different episode. Mm-hmm. There are so many moments, even after Felix is dead and they all go back to have lunch because his parents just, they're pretending this isn't even happening. And the butler or whoever, he, like, 
draws the blinds and then, so oh, and, then and then the whole room is like red bathed in red because the, the curtains or whatever again maximalist absolutely nutty in the best way like mm-hmm. i do believe that is one of five different moments in the film where i involuntarily out loud said the words oh dear <laughs> oh dear yes <laughs> now i'm i'm gonna yeah. say though i i go back and forth on this like reveal at the end that he's been kind of pulling the strings because even renowned filmmakers before her have done this they've indulged maybe they've gone too far i think of the rat in the windowsill at the end of the departed mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> the literal rat mm-hmm. on the windowsill or the mm-hmm. clinical doctor's explanation of norman bates and psycho right. at the end sure. um yes. so this happens and i and i go back and forth on whether i needed that or not and whether i feel as though well couldn't we have just like assumed or like not have known necessarily that like the whole lending him his bike at Oxford was making it so that he needed a bike at that moment, that Felix needed a bike at that moment. So I don't know. Is it particularly revelatory? I'm not sure. But everything about it is just so deliciously evil and cruel. And I love it. I can't help but just like be brought into it in a way. I mean, you have to assume that somewhere in the making of this movie, somebody said to her, does he really have to hump the grave? Like, <laughs> well, no, I think that needed to be there. And she said, 100%, baby. So I think once you go down that road, then I think, you know, the reveal that the entire thing was a con is it, it fits. But I get what you're saying. I don't know that it's like the heart and soul of the movie. But, but the humping of the grave, the, the voyeurism, the licking in the drain, that's all about something. That's all about thwarted desire and the Oliver character's belief that he is not worthy mm-hmm. of being a romantic partner with Felix because of the system that they exist within. And the only way he can become real to Felix is by pretending to be part of that system and being humble and so grateful and, oh, you've done so much for me. And if he felt free to voice his desire and act on his desire instead of sublimating in all these weird plans within plans within plans, then maybe things could have turned out very differently. But uh, that's that's why I think, you know, when you see those moments in a crowded theater, there's a lot of, in this movie that's kind of squicky and like she delights in making people squirm. But then there's also a moment in this film where two guys kiss. Got the same reaction in my theater. And it's like, oh, okay. Yeah. No, <laughs> I thought I thought I believed in humanity, but it turns out I don't. <laughs> well, I mean, that the other thing is this is set in the late 2000s and Having been that age, like in college at that time, homophobia was still very, very rampant and just ingrained in a way that like it's a little bit better now. I don't I don't even know if I could fathom the idea that there would be a possibility for him to say this to him, not just because of the perhaps ingrained homophobia or just like how that might be perceived, but also the fact that, again, there is this class difference. And even though. He is middle class, and to some extent, that class difference can seem even more uh, pronounced from, like, middle class to super, super wealthy as opposed to just being very, very poor. Yeah. I think the other thing that's interesting about what you raised, Glenn, is I don't know that had he just gone and tried to, like, become friends with Felix or, you know, express interest in Felix, I don't know that Felix would have had any interest in him outside of the 
dynamic that they develop. Because I think one of the mm-hmm. things the movie is constantly playing with is this idea that there is something in this relationship for Felix also, mm-hmm. which is underscored when they keep kind of mentioning that he does this again and again. So it's sort of like Felix has this idea of taking somebody who can't afford the nice things that he has and bringing them to the house so that they can be super grateful and see how rich mm-hmm. he is and admire everything that he is capable of having. And, you know, he's just a middle-class guy. Then there's not the same thing in it for Felix. So he's kind of, oh, yeah. he rejects him for not being pitiable enough in mm-hmm. a way, you know? Felix's, Felix's yeah. friendship is built on conditions of, like, not just that he has to be <laughs> considered, like, the, coming from a, Oliver has to be considered coming from a broken home, but also that Oliver has to to be his friend in the way that he wants him to be. Mm-hmm. So, like, that whole thing about him hooking up with Venetia, mm-hmm. you know, that makes him upset. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, exactly. Because if he did hook up with Venetia, even in, momentarily, he's suddenly on Felix's level. And right. as much as Felix m- takes pains to minimize and dismiss his wealth and like, I'm not like everybody else, how important it is to him to be seen as not like everybody else, that is the thing that makes it, that brings him up short. And I, th- I think that's the essential tragedy of the story. There is tragedy here. You know, instead of uh, like the winds of fate, like in uh, ancient Greek plays, we get um, the class system. I just love the way I thought I was watching the talented Mr. Ripley and suddenly I was watching Parasite. <laughs> yep. <laughs> yeah. I just wonder, you know, we have all of these quote unquote eat the rich stories, but this doesn't feel like a eat the rich story. This is just about one family. There was someone actually, I will not name their names, but it was a tweet. (laughs) They suggested that this movie is all about the middle class being conniving evil freaks who intensely uh, covet the wealth and social status of these people. And, you know, is it that deep or does that feel like a reach? I don't think it's that. I think it's much more specific to these characters than that. I think it's much more a comment on the extremely wealthy because there are a lot of characters who fall into that category. So you sort of get more reflection on them. But the only middle class person you really get to know is is Oliver. So I don't I don't think it's meant to be that broad. I just think the focus is on the idleness of the rich and not the rich themselves, like what they do with their lives, what they do with their time. And we see how empty these days are and how languorous they are over the course of a summer. And that's what I think, I think that's where the the acid comes in. I think if there is caustic nature to this movie, that's where it's directed. And how empty they are as people, you know, mm-hmm. that's yeah. that's the soul of the Rosamund Pike performance in particular. I, I don't see it as a, as a critique of the middle class so much as a critique of the pursuit of wealth, that it is, yeah. it is just mm-hmm. an extreme case of wealth being such a corrupting, and curdling influence that the pursuit of it can can turn deadly in the wrong hands. I d- deadly in yeah. the wrong hands. That's what I. Th- that's the kind of movie I think it is. You know, just delicious. That's the soap opera version of this. That's the lifetime movie. <laughs> well, we want to know what you think about Saltburn. You can find us at facebook.com/pchh. And that brings us to the end of our show. Linda Holmes, Glenn Weldon, Stephen Thompson, thanks so much for being here and helping me parse through all of Emerald Fennell's maximalism. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. Good to be here. And we want to take a moment to thank our Pop Culture Happy Hour Plus subscribers. We appreciate you so very much for showing your support of NPR. 
If you haven't signed up yet and you want to show your support and listen to this show without any sponsor breaks, head over to plus.npr.org slash happy hour or visit the link in our show notes. This episode was produced by Liz Metzger and edited by Mike Katzev. Our supervising producer is Jessica Reedy. And Hello, Come In provides our theme music. Thank you so much for listening to Pop Culture Happy Hour from NPR. I'm Aisha Harris, and we'll see you all tomorrow. This message comes from Capital One, offering commercial solutions you can bank on. Your business faces specific challenges and unique opportunities. That's why Capital One offers a comprehensive suite of financial services, custom tailored to your short and long-term goals. Backed by the expertise, strategy, and resources of a top 10 commercial bank, a dedicated team works with you to support your success and help achieve your goals. Explore the possibilities at CapitalOne.com slash commercial. This message comes from NPR sponsor, BetterHelp. When you're carrying around a lot of stress, therapy is a safe space to get it off your chest. If you're considering therapy, give BetterHelp a try at BetterHelp.com slash NPR to get 10% off your first month. The Embedded Podcast brings you eye-opening reporting. There's something that hasn't been disclosed yet. Immersive journalism. I could smell the smoke. I could smell the dust. Personal stories. I was scared. Like, I can't protect you. We are NPR's home for documentary storytelling. Find Embedded wherever you get your podcasts.